Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Anne Fedotova. And today our guest is Major Aliyah Nadim. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. He is the Individual Mobilization Assistant to the Director of Operation and 70th Operation Support Squadron. 70th ISR wing, Fort Meade, Maryland. So Ali actually appeared on NBC News and she shared her story of resiliency. She was kidnapped as a child when she traveled to Iraq with her family. We will ask her tons of questions about this. Hi, Aliyah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for agreeing to be interviewed. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do? I know you just came back from a deployment this week. You are graceful to agree to do this interview with me. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for for doing what you're doing. I love that you're highlighting folks, so happy to do this. Yes, I just got back from my deployment, so I am adjusting to everything and uh, just enjoying my time off right now. You you came back um, Tuesday? No, I I came back Thursday, so I have Friday and the weekend, and then head back up to Fort Meade tomorrow, where I work intelligence. And so I'll be going back up there at NSA and back into the grind of work. I cannot believe you. You must still be jet lagged. (laughs) Where are you coming from? Where were you deployed? So I was deployed to Al Udeed Air Force Base out in Qatar, and uh, I was there for about six months. Well, thank you for your service. And tell us a little bit about yourself and why did you join the Air Force? Yes, so I grew up in Ohio. I was going to high school there. And just like everybody else, kind of remembering where you were on 9-11. And I remember I was a junior in high school. And I watched on TV what happened. And of course, I was devastated like the rest of the world and the U.S. And the biggest thing that happened after that is... You know, people were saying some really cruel things after 9-11, and it was particularly towards Muslims and Arabs. And I think people could tell the difference between someone who was a practicing Muslim, someone who was an Arab, um, and then someone who was a terrorist. And so I think that was the first time I probably did some introspection to go, wait a minute, I think I'm Arab. Mm. I think I'm I'm Middle Eastern. why are people saying these things? Because, you know, I know my family back in the Middle East, you know, they're wonderful people, and I don't like the things that people are saying. So that sparked me deciding to, to serve my country and to really hope to change people's perspective. And I know it was a little bit naive, but that's what got me down the Air Force path. And so this was at the end of uh, high school? Or? Yes. Uh, so I, I had about a year left. 
So I actually joined as a junior. You know, you can do that as long as you're 17. And I used to work at this grocery store. I was a bagger, and there was a gentleman there who had been in the Air Force, and he said, hey, if you're thinking about joining the military, you should join the Air Force. So I went to a recruiter, and I signed up that year. And after I graduated high school, six months later, I was off to basic training. Oh. And you were, became a security forces, right? Yes. So I, you know, how I became security forces, people are, you know, they're always like, that just doesn't match your personality. And, you know, <laughs> if anybody knows me, I'm super feminine, super girly. You know, <laughs> I'll just be honest, high maintenance, you know, all those things. And then, what are you doing in security forces? And, and how that happened is, is when I went into the recruiter's office, I said, you know, what deploys the most? Oh. I want to deploy. I am ready to go deploy. And you know, bridge these gaps in culture and educate people and educate our troops. And she was like, well, security forces deploys the most, but you, know, you should really consider something else. And I was like, nope. I was very determined. And I said, I'm doing security forces. You know, not realizing you have to go through basic training, tech school, your first base. <laughs> so again, just me being naive. And so that's how I ended up in security forces. And did you end up uh, deploying quite a bit as you had hoped? No, you know, not, a, not at all. I had, to, I had to fight for it. Funny enough, once I joined security forces, I really fell in love with the military. And I decided to put in a commissioning package because I said, you know, if I'm going to stay, I want to become an officer. And so I, I put in a commissioning package. I got accepted. And so right as I'm getting accepted, I also get tagged with the deployment. Talk about timing, mm -hmm. right? And so at the time, I was like, you know, what do I do? Do I go commission or do I deploy? And my chief at the time said, you're not going to deploy. You're going to go commission. You're going to do, you know, bigger and better things. And I remember it was such a tough decision because what are you going to do? And he goes, you're going to have your time to deploy. You know, don't worry. But it, it was a struggle at the time. I felt really bad, but I also knew if I didn't commission, I'd have to go through the whole process again. So I ended up going to ROTC and taking the scholarship and missing out on that deployment. Mm. And you became an intelligence officer. I actually commissioned into the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, you know, okay. also known as OSI, and I was doing fraud. Like many in the Air Force, if there's too many in your year group or something like that happens, you have to cross-train. So I ended up cross-training into Intel, Oh, actually. I see. And, and you've been doing that since that time. Yes. Were you able to deploy as an ISR? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I have been able to deploy, and it's and it's been wonderful each time. And you feel like you really contribute. I mean, it's challenging. Don't get me wrong, but I feel that's where I've contributed most. And especially in this last deployment, Operation Inherent Resolve really focuses on Iraq and Syria. And you know, sometimes when you talk to somebody about Syria. First of all, they don't know where it's located. <laughs> they may not even know it's a country. And you really have to educate about culture and explain to folks, hey, this seems like a big deal to us, but that's kind of status quo in the Middle Eastern culture. So I think I've really been able to add value from an intelligence perspective, highlighting the cultural differences. I have felt so connected. And I'm really glad I've been able to contribute. Yeah, so that, that brings us to your story of growing up and your background, your Arabic. Your mom is an American, your dad is an Iraqi citizen? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you ended up living in Iraq. Yeah, so my father was an immigrant. He came to the U.S. to go to college, and my mother was an American, and so they met in college. She was Catholic, he was Muslim, and 
fell in love and they got married and they had two kids, me and my sister. And I would say for the most part, it was a great love story. And then it took a turn because I think culture kind of tore them apart because my dad, all of his family was back home. I think as he got older, he wanted to become a practicing Muslim. And I think that was very difficult for my mom. When she met my dad, he basically came to the U.S., a non-practicing Muslim, and she didn't know his family from Iraq and all that. So I think as my dad got a little bit older, he wanted to become a practicing Muslim. He wanted to go visit his family. And so I actually grew up going to church and the mosque. So I thought that was normal. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but but it worked really well for them. It worked really well until it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And... Unfortunately, my dad made some very poor choices because he no longer wanted to live in the U.S. and he struggled with the culture. My parents ended up divorcing because they were struggling with that. And my dad told my mother, and this is after their divorce, he said, hey, he wanted to go visit Iraq and he wanted to take me and my sister because, you know, his mother was sick and he thought she was going to die. And he, he just wanted to make sure that you know she saw her grandkids. So he asked my mother actually to go with him and to bring us girls back to Iraq so that we could see her. And so my mother agreed. And how old you were at the time and how old were your sister? So I, I was about, I was eight years old um, and my sister was four. And so we actually went as a family. It was dubbed like we're going on a family vacation to Iraq. And I didn't really know any different. I was with both of my parents. And so we went to Iraq. And you're supposed to come back. Right. And so we were supposed to come back. And so the, you know, the night before we're supposed to leave, and it, I will say it was a great trip. My family was amazing. You know, I, I didn't speak a lick of Arabic, but, you know, you could just feel their warmth and their love, and they were so happy to, you know, see me and my sister and my and family. And have you met them before, or was this the first time you were introduced to them? This was the first time that I had been introduced to them. It, it was a wonderful experience. It was something I will always remember, their warmth and their love. Unfortunately, the night before we're supposed to leave, my father wakes me and my sister up and says, Hey, do you guys want to go out? Uh, we can go get some candy and ice cream and we'll have fun. And, you know, when your parents wake you up when you're eight and say you're going to go get candy and ice cream, there's only one answer is yes, let's, let's go do this. Is. So we went to my aunt's house and we're playing. We were just having such a good time. We're playing around and then I just notice my dad's not there. And I kind of start to get, okay, where's my dad? And then I notice he's gone. And my family's trying to console me because I'm starting to cry. My sister's starting to cry. I'm becoming protective of her. I don't understand the language. And as an eight-year-old, I'm, I'm frustrated. I remember that feeling of being frustrated my parents. And I remember that night we ended up crying, me and my sister crying ourselves to sleep in my aunt's house. But again... I didn't really know them that well. That's when my nightmare began because I didn't see my dad until a couple days later. And when I do see my dad, you know, my mother's not with him. And I am, okay, you know, where's my mom? You know, what's going on? And, you know, my dad made another extremely poor choice. And, you know, he explained to me and my sister that, you know, our mother left. Uh, she left us because, you know, she didn't want to be with us anymore. And, you know, we were we were not good kids. Oh. And we wanted to go back to America. And I remember, I, I remember that as clear as day. And I, 
I remember one of the first things I said, and, and you know, I, have to, I have to backtrack to, in order for this to make sense. When I was younger, before I'd go to school, I, I don't know why I always did this, but I'd always forget to brush my nose. <laughs> one of my things that my mom would always, you know, give me like a sticky note or like, Aaliyah, you need to brush your teeth before you go to school. That's gross. And I, you know, I just remember it was like a... It's like a hot, a hot topic around our house of me forgetting to brush my teeth. And so anyways, as my dad's telling me that my mom doesn't want to be with us anymore, you know, the first thing I say is, well, dad, you know, I'll brush mm. my teeth if, if that's what it's going to take. And because I'm eight, you know, so this is all I know. And it was just, I was like, what do you mean she left? Like, what are we going to yeah. do? And, you know, oh, and so, oh, so it was a struggle. How did you feel during that time? And what did you say to your sister? I just felt such such an emptiness, such a scared, just, it's, I don't even know if I know the words. It's more of these feelings. It's almost like this isn't reality. You know, you're like, there's no way. This is, this is not really happening. Um, and I just felt like, I felt like I just had to grow up so quick, you know, from these moments I became like an adult overnight. My thought process became different. I mean, growing up, my sister was always this pain in the butt, right? Because I'm the older child. And for mm. once, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to protect her. I have, like, she has, she has nobody else anymore. And all these feelings that you, you never knew you had, as especially as an eight-year-old, just kind of bubble up. And what what happens next? At some point, your your mother takes your sister. Yeah. So. At some point, my mother is back at my grandmother's house, and I have to point out, my grandmother is not deathly sick. <laughs> my grandmother is sick um, in the sense she's had some knee issues, but she's not on her mm -hmm. deathbed. So I think my mom, I think my mom, she'll tell you she knew something was up, but didn't exactly know what. And so she's over at my grandparents' house in Iraq, and she convinces one of my uncles my dad's brother to to reunite because she knows that we're there but she just doesn't know where we are and she says you know how can you do this to a mother well, i'm in your country and so one of my uncles a very great man he realizes this is not right and he actually takes her to us and so i remember my mom came kind of barreling in the door and i could hear my mom's voice i'm like oh my god it's my mom she didn't leave and so we reunite and it's 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 every bit wonderful that you can think it is And then we ended up going back to my grandmother's house with my mom. And, you know, my mom's packing her bag. So this is all happening so quick. I reunite with my mom. We get into a car. We go back to my grandmother's house. And she's packing her bags. But she's not packing my stuff. And I don't know why. I, you know, I'm, but I'm glued by her side. Me, you know, me and my sister both. And she's crying. You know, she's hysterical. And she has her bag. She walks downstairs and she looks at my dad and she says, why are you making me do this? Why are you making me choose? And he says, you need to choose one. You need to choose. And I, I still don't get it. I don't know what they're talking about. You know, and the whole family's out. This is like public mm -hmm. display. My, my crying, grandmother's crying. I mean, we're all crying, but I don't know what. And, you know, she, she picks up my sister And then is forced into a car by my dad. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not going. I, I'm staying here. And it just, I, I can't even tell you the, the depth of the feeling. 
just, it, it, it's awful. I, I mean, I've, I've never felt anger like I did that day. What happened next? She left back to the U.S. My dad forced her to leave, and I just picked up life and started living as an Iraqi girl. I went to school. I did chores like the rest of my family did. I just, I just started living, living life. But I always knew my family's back in the U.S. I picked up, but there was definitely a piece of me that was just kind of always in angst about what happened. Mm -hmm. I was very angry at my dad. I was angry at my mom, because why did she pick my sister? Why didn't she mm -hmm. pick me? What did I do? Why couldn't she have left my sister? Mm -hmm. So I, I, just, I just picked up. But I can say it, it, made me, it made me grow up. It made me become independent. I was, I was forced to, to learn a new culture, a new language. I, I never thought I'd be grateful to live in Iraq, in Mosul, Iraq. But I did. I lived under Saddam Hussein's regime, the first desert storm. Things that I got to see, especially as an adult now, they come in full perspective. Only having two TV stations in the house, having your electricity shut off at any time, because that was the Saddam Hussein regime. I got to see things that I never would have thought, but I just just started my life. And I remember when Desert Storm started, I was so confused. Why is America here? What are they doing here? I lived actually next to a hospital. It was called Mustafa Saddam, which is Hospital of Saddam, and it was in Mosul. And a U.S. helicopter landed in a field right next to our house. And I remember I ran out. And all the other kids in the neighborhood did too. They ran out because it's exciting and crowded around this helicopter and they were obviously moving some sort of patient. And I remember this guy, he's in his flight suit, he's got the American flag across his arm and I run up to him and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm from Toledo, Ohio. You gotta take me home. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you gotta do this now. And, you know, he's like, what? What is this girl talking about? <laughs> you know, and you know, the whole time I'm trying to convince him to, to How take How old me were home. you at the time? About, I'm either 10 or 11. You know, he obviously didn't take me home, but I think to look at it now as an adult is, hey, I still remembered. You know, I still was aware that home was Ohio, that home was the U.S., that these are the things that I still craved. Even though I would say I became happy in Iraq, I just knew I was disconnected from my family. What was it like to live in a family you didn't want to live in? You were mad at your dad. I imagine you weren't happy with the family and you didn't speak the language. What was that like for you? So I think, you know, there were some aspects that I wasn't very happy with. Um, just because of the culture, you know, it's, it's very different. I just wasn't happy kind of sort of being like a second-class citizen. And I don't mean that in, in a derogatory term, but I mean it as in, like, you can feel a female, you know it. You know, growing up in the U.S. and then growing up in, in Iraq, you know, I had to cover up. Or if I did something, it was haram or abe, which basically means, you know, it's disrespectful. And that's how women and even young women are treated there. And so a lot of people talk about what freedom is, but I can tell you, when you don't have freedom, you can feel it. It's very obvious. And I just kind of remember that feeling. But I would say I was treated just as good as the rest of my family. It's just I kind of knew better. I, I had a whole different perspective that I could see 
And then for my dad, even though I was angry at him, he was the only person I really knew before I came to Iraq. And so it was kind of, this is it. This is my dad. What am I going to do? So I just almost sort of accepted what had happened. Did you feel loved by your family? I did. I, I did feel loved by my family, but I felt like an outlier. How did you learn the language? You know, just by trial and error, out of sheer panic. <laughs> Nobody spoke English other than your dad. Yes, and men aren't around in the Middle East. It's not like that they're going to be at home. So in order for me to communicate, in order for me to do anything, I had to learn it. And so it's amazing what you can learn <laughs> when you're yeah. scared. So, and I don't want to say my life depended on it, but it kind of felt like it did. So I picked it up. And when you're younger, you absorb things a little bit better when you're older. And I just just started speaking. I think with, within about six months, I was able to get mm -hmm. by. And how did you do in school then? Because you'd have to write and read in Arabic, right? Yeah, so school was tough. And I'll tell you why school was tough. You know, number one, their school institutions are really based on memorization. And that's a cultural thing. For example, you're expected to memorize certain passages of the Quran. They're kind of a memorization culture, if you will. So they want you to memorize, which is good for me because you don't have to read it from a book. But it's also tough because if you don't do things correctly, they can hit you in mm. school. And so you got to get your hands out and get slapped with some wooden sticks. It's not fun. So that's motivation itself, not to get hit in school. So you quickly learn, probably at a faster rate, when you don't want to get hit. And so I struggled at first, and I had my fair share of lickings, but I got over that and just tried. Okay. What, what would you say was the most difficult about being in that situation? So you were in that family from the age of eight until when? Uh, Twelve. Twelve. What was the most difficult about being in that situation? The most difficult was being motherless. Mm -hmm. um, because even for that culture, you're raised by your mother, even more so. Because in that culture, women don't work, and they stay at home and intend to the children. So not having a mother, it was sometimes frightening. You kind of just felt like I had to be my own comforter, my own everything. I didn't have anyone to turn to if I had certain questions. Just being isolated, you know, a little bit. And I think other women came in and tried to step into that role, but nobody can really do that like your mother. Well, that's so, so lonely. Yeah, there are some very lonely aspects of that. And some of those things that happened to me when I was younger have affected me today as an adult, for better or worse. When you don't have a mother at a young age, I think that has some profound impacts on you as an And adult. And what do you think are those impacts today? I think some of those impacts is I would consider myself almost too independent. Mm. My mom always says, you never call me enough. And I never think to. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, I think when I was programmed at a young age, you have to think for yourself. There's no safety net. You don't have a parent you can go and ask these things. So I have to be careful to not be so independent or make independent choices all the time to kind of go, okay, wait a minute, hold on. It's, it's good to be independent, but it's also good to rely on other people to have those relationships where you feel like you can 100% trust somebody or have a safety net 
And just to be honest, I still struggle with that today. Do you remember the hardest day out of all of those four years you spent in Iraq? Yeah, I mean, I think the hardest day was when my mother had to choose and I had to, to watch that happen. Did anybody explain to you why she chose your sister or not you? No, I think only she knew why. Not till I became an adult did I know the reason and I understand. I am by no means mad at her or anything like that. First of all, nobody should ever be put in that situation. But I think she made the best decision that she could with, with what she was dealt with. But even to this day, it's always emotional and difficult to talk about. Have you been back to Iraq? You know, I have not been back to Iraq. I think that would be really tough. You don't want to? If you had an opportunity, would you go? I, I would go. I think the town that I grew up in, Mosul, because of ISIS moving in, that place is destroyed. I look at pictures of where I used to grow up or where I used to play, and it's completely destroyed. It's just, it's... It's kind of like this eerie feeling of, wow, I can't believe I used to live there. And so it's just more sad because it's just weird to see a place you grew up completely destroyed. And do you keep in contact with anybody at all from your family? And do you ever talk? And do you ever explain your side of the story? Have you had the chance to do that? Yeah, I keep in touch with my family in the Middle East, in Iraq. And we don't really ever talk about what happened. I think we just kind of focus on you know, how they're doing and just kind of making sure that they're okay because, you know, Iraq's been through a lot of trauma. And so usually that's kind of the forefront is, number one, are you alive? Mm. Has anyone died? Is, mm. is everyone okay? So those kind of things take a backseat just because of what's happening there. And do you know what's, what's their feeling about you being in the U.S. military? I think they're very happy. I never knew how they were going to feel about that, but they're very happy. They're very proud. They're very pro-U.S. They've always been pro-U.S. Even when I was there under Saddam Hussein regime, they were always pro-U.S., but they had to be very quiet about it. It's not something they could publicly say. And also, it's very easy to be pro-U.S. because Saddam Hussein, what he did to his people was not great either. So they've always supported the U.S. And I'm grateful for that. Tell me, during the time you were in Iraq, what kept you going? I, I think I'm, I remember I used to go, you know, I used to go up on the rooftop in Iraq because the houses have flat roofs. And I would just go look up in the sky and just say, you know, I know I'm going to make it. I know I'm going to get out of here. I know everything's going to be okay. And even if I was maybe lying to myself, I just always tried to say, this is all going to work out. There's something, I could just feel it. You know, it's like, this is, this is not the end, no matter how difficult it was. And there, and there were some difficult days, you know. It, it, it was tough. Um, but just, you know, maybe, you know, forcing yourself into believe that there's something, that something good is going to happen or you're going to get out of here. I remember telling myself that. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to make it home. It sounds like hope or creating hope, creating something that gave you that future. Yeah, I think you kind of have to. And, you know, also when you're young, <laughs> you know, you're between 8 and 12. <laughs> you're not jaded. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I think, you know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, you're not only... 
naive and you, you really do think the world is at your fingertips. And, and I think there was never any premise in my head that it wasn't going to happen. It was just like, when is it going to happen? Mm. It can't come soon mm. enough. Do you have any words of wisdom to those service members who may be going through tough times? Yeah, you know, I think I think everybody goes through tough times. You know, I think that's an that's a no brainer. But I think mm. we all have our own story. You know, I'm I'm telling you my story, but all of us airmen, you know, all of us, all of us as humans, we all have our own story, and. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is you just have to keep going. Even if it feels like you have 50-pound weights, you just got to take that one step forward. And that's really what's kept me going, I think, through all these things. It's the one thing I do know if I stop and I quit, I, I'm going to get stuck there. And I think it's always just keep moving, keep going, and, and you'll get out of whatever you're going through, no matter what the situation is. It's kind of what's helped me get through all my situation is just keep moving. Would you say that being kidnapped in Iraq was the toughest thing you've gone through or was there was there some other significant event that I'm not asking you about? But you think that going through that event in Iraq helped you deal with, with other tough circumstances? You know, I would say that was probably the toughest situation that I that I've probably ever been through. But I feel like I've had different intensities on maybe, you know, that was kind of a long-term situation. I feel like some of my most toughest decisions I had to make in a week or a month, a little bit more fast-paced that were, they were very stressful and I didn't know what to do. So I think sometimes situations are, are all different. You know, it's whether time is a factor in it, but that's probably the toughest that I think in my life to compare it to anything. But I can tell you that there's been situations where I felt like, I had to make tougher decisions than living in Iraq or having to grow up fast. I felt like I've had to make tougher decisions on things that maybe the outside world would think, that's stupid. That's not even a tough decision compared to what you went through. But to Can me, you give an example of what that would be? Yeah, and I, I almost feel a bit silly saying this, but one of the toughest decisions I felt like I had to make was leaving active duty to go to the reserves. I felt like it was the toughest decision I had to make at that moment. I was working at the Pentagon. It was a wonderful assignment, but I was working long hours. I was I was exhausted. I just knew I could not take another assignment. I needed a break, and I just felt like I was going to disappoint so many people by not staying on active duty. It sounds silly now, but at the time, it was just the hardest decision I felt like I had to make, and it wasn't. But I guess it's all perspective. Now you happy with the decision? Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. I wish I. I mean, I sometimes I'm like, why did I even think that was a big deal? It was so, you know, it was such an easy decision, and and it's been so wonderful, you know, because I've had the balance that I've wanted, and I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to pursue other things. Well, tell um, us yeah. about it. So Actually, it, what's next for you? Yeah, so one of the reasons I did want to get off active duty is as I want to pursue psychology. I definitely want to pursue research and kind of focus on women and veterans in the military. And so I'm trying to to take that path. And, and like I was sharing with you, I, I received my third rejection letter from a PhD program. And God, it's it's so tough. You know, it's it's it doesn't feel good. It's like a punch in the face. But like I, I, have, I was telling you, you know, I just got to keep going. I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. 
So even all these years later, I still have my struggles I'm giving, and giving myself one step in front of the other and I'll try to figure it out and, and work my way towards my How goal. How did you get contacted by NBC News? How did it all happen? I'm just really curious. Yeah, well... It's amazing how things sometimes work is, so when I was deployed, I worked for the Air Force Central Command, Air Force Central Command Commander, which is Lieutenant General Harigian, and I was his exec for three weeks. I was backfilling the current exec, and up there in, in his office, he, he also has a cultural advisor, and the cultural advisor, he's Egyptian. And so I was talking to him and I said, you know, would you mind practicing some Arabic with me? I'm so rusty. <laughs> and, you know, he goes, of course. And so there was this whiteboard and we were writing out some Arabic because I was trying to get my Arabic a little bit better. And we had left the writings up there. We got busy. And the public affairs 06, who is General Harigian's public affairs officer, he walked by and kind of made a comment, and I said, oh, yeah, this is how it happened. And he was like, how did you know Arabic? And so I ended up explaining to him a little bit of my story, and he ended up helping me submit a story to the New York Public Affairs Office. And he was like, hey, I really think that this would be a good story you should share. And so the next thing I knew, you know, a week later, they called and said, NBC wants to interview you. And oh, it literally cool. happened. Yeah, <laughs> so it was... It, 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 that's how it happened, you know, it's not something that was 100% planned. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I'm no NBC, so thank you for <laughs> crazy. talking to me. Uh, you're a celebrity now, what does that feel like to, to get 100 hits? And I don't even know how many people, but I watched some of your YouTube videos, and it looks like thousands of people watched it. It, it feels no different, like I said, I'm... I'm still I'm still home. I'm still struggling cleaning my house. Yeah, like so it's no different. Oh, it was so much fun to, to interview you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm a big fan of podcasts in general. And so when I, when I listened to all the ones you did, uh, I'll tell you, I reached out to, um, I can't think of the young lady's Capertino. name. I reached out to her and I, I sent her a message and I said, you know, wow, your your story, I told her that you had reached out and I was thinking about doing a podcast and I said, you know, listening to her story, you want to talk about oh, one great, humble. I mean, I was just like, God, I have nothing to complain about and so I, I actually hope when I come to LA I can go visit her, but, you know, thank you for sharing these people's stories because all so many airmen do have awesome. stories and I love what you're doing. I am, I am a so fan much. of, I, I love well, I love it. So, so thank you for what you're doing, really. so much, so much goodness in what you said. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thank you again. All right, talk to you later. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail. Dot mail.
It's anna.v. F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A. Mil at mail.mil. Mil.